Okay, grab your Bibles and open them uh, to the book of Habakkuk. Now, that's in the Old Testament, and uh, it'll take some doings to find, but it's in there, I promise. Um, if you know, it's pretty close to the, um, the um, New Testament. Habakkuk chapter 1. I want to read you the, um, the first 11 verses of Habakkuk 1. You follow in your copies as I read. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see and wonder, see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. You know, one of these days, we're going to have to study this whole book of Habakkuk, but for now, I I just want to concentrate on the, really, just the opening lines. Um, Let let me tell you just a little bit about what I just read to you, and, and, and maybe it'll make, hopefully it'll make more sense. Verse 1, of course, does a couple of things. It, um, it identifies the author, the author being the prophet Habakkuk. But in verse 1, there's also a word used that is a, that is a big time word in the Old Testament. The word oracle. It's a Hebrew word that's variously translated. It's translated a couple, or about three different ways. Uh, for instance, the New King James translates it burden. But um, what, what, it, what it signifies is that uh, this is a special something that, that uh, Habakkuk's got to say here. Guys, the, 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 the only way I know how to describe it is to liken it to what you see in Roman Catholicism. Let, let me explain. If you've come from Roman Catholicism, you know that there is a doctrine in Roman Catholicism called papal infallibility. You ever heard that? That the, that the Pope speaks infallibly? Well, that doctrine doesn't mean that everything that the Pope says is infallible. What it means is, well, what it says is, that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that means from the throne, 
When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking infallibly. So there are occasions, and, and they're, they're somewhat rare, but when the Pope speaks ex cathedra in Roman Catholicism, he is speaking infallibly. So not everything that he says is infallible. My point is, not everything that the, that the prophet says in the Old Testament is, is an oracle. But this is. This is a formal prophetic protestation. This is a formal prophetic statement on the part of Habakkuk that is picked up by the Holy Spirit and brought into this book. This is, um, this is big. I mean, the prophets had ministries and they would, you know, go around Israel and they would perform. But every now and then, they would step forth and say, I have a burden. I have an oracle. And that's what this is. It's an oracle that, that uh, turns into a brief dialogue or a conversation between God and Habakkuk. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but uh, what you have in the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue that goes on between um, God and Habakkuk. Uh, the first speaker is Habakkuk in verses 2 through 4. But then God speaks in verses 5 through 11. And then Habakkuk speaks again in verses 12 through um, uh, 2-1. And then in 2-2 and following, God speaks again. It's a, it's a dialogue that's going on between Habakkuk and God. And here's what, in, in, in essence, Habakkuk is saying. He's upset. He is upset about what he sees in, in his country. Um, he, um, he's somebody that's very concerned. In fact, he mentions it in verse 12 and verse 13, which I didn't read, but, um, he's very concerned about the holiness of God being trampled upon. He mentions, um, verse 12, Oh Lord, my God, my holy one. Verse 13, you have a pure eyes than to look upon evil. He, he, he knows that God is holy and he looks at his country and watches as the holiness of God is trampled upon by the citizens of the country. And it's upsetting. And the thing that perhaps most upsets him is that it appears to him that God is indifferent about it. He's certainly inactive. You know, here the people go trampling upon uh, your law and justice is never done. And, and uh, this uh, this uh, proliferation of wickedness and the, and the, the, the rotted uh, uh, evil that's in our cities and, and on and on and on he goes. I mean, look at it, guys. He says... Um, why do you look idly at what is wrong? The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Justice goes forth perverted. It, it's given rise to all kinds of wickedness and crime and injustice. And the, and the most upsetting thing to the prophet is, why don't you do something about this? Why are you, why are you inactive? And then God speaks in verse 5. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans to be a rod of judgment against Israel. And then those next verses that go on to describe the Chaldeans. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fierce they're as evening wolves. They scoff at kings. They all come for violence and, and their faces are looking forward and they laugh at kings and they laugh at fortresses and they pile up earth and they take the fortresses and, and the, their own might is their God. Then Habakkuk says, <laughs> oh, wait just a second. Um, the cure sounds a whole lot worse than the disease. And then they enter into this dialogue. And that's, that's what we'll look at one day in the future. But guys, here's what I'm, here's what I'm up to. Um, in light of July the 4th occurring this Friday, I want to use those first 11 verses as kind of a backdrop, uh, to make some, a few applications for us as 21st century Americans. Um, I just want to draw from here some things that um, hopefully will be applicable to us as Americans in the 21st century. Um, guys, verses 2 through 4 contain several questions. You know, how long shall I cry for help? Are you not here? Uh, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do I cry violence and you won't save? All that, all those questions, a series of questions there. Um, those are very much similar to questions that I ask often, but not about Israel, but about America. And you know what? I bet I'm not the only one. What has happened to America? I, I thought that the best way to answer that question is first to give you just a little bit of historical perspective. So let me do that. might be good for all of us. Um, I think you know that it was on um, September the 17th of eight, 1787 that the, the Constitution was completed and signed by all of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Um, what you might not know is, I, I mean, I think you know that part, that little historical fact, but what you might not know is that there were several of those distinguished signatories, and, um, and among others, who expressed grave concerns about democracy. You know, it was Plato that said democracy was the worst form of good government and the best form of bad government. But uh, listen to these statements, not made by a Greek philosopher, but made by names that you're going to recognize. At least you're going to recognize several of them. Maybe not all of them. John Witherspoon said, Pure democracy cannot subsist long nor be carried far into the departments of state. It is very subject to caprice and the madness of popular rage. Noah Webster said, A pure democracy is often the most tyrannical government on earth. Benjamin Rush. A simple democracy is one of the greatest of evils. James Madison. Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention and have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property. 
John Quincy Adams. The experience of all former ages has shown that of all human governments, democracy was the most unstable, fluctuating, and short-lived. John Adams, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. One more. This is a name that you won't recognize, I don't think. His name is uh, Alexander Tyler. He wrote this right before America was born. He said this, quoting, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Listen. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves a largesse from the treasury. From that moment on, the majority will always vote for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy. You gotten your rebate check yet? You know, the economic stimulus package? Guys, there is nothing sacred about democracy. There's nothing sacred about capitalism. There is nothing sacred about the Republican Party. And there's nothing sacred about the Democratic Party. God is not a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's both. In fact, he's more liberal than a liberal, and he's more conservative than a conservative. The point I simply want you to hear is this. It has long been known that democracies are, um, shall we say, Temporary? Now, um, <clears throat> having said that, what has happened to our political and judicial and moral systems in America is, is fairly easy to pinpoint. You know what happened? Sin. That's what happened. But again, to explain that, um, let me give you a little bit more of an historical perspective. On May the 11th of 1831, you got that 1831, a young 25-year-old Frenchman arrived in Manhattan, and his goal in coming was to um, investigate and examine this young American democracy in the hopes that he could take some lessons back to uh, France. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. He, for the next nine months, he traveled some 7,000 miles by horseback and riverboat and stagecoach and foot, uh, conducting interviews with uh, hundreds of people, and he filled up 14 notebooks. The result of that study was arguably the most penetrating 
and, and certainly the most often quoted analysis of Americans and their government. It was a book entitled Democracy in America. I hope that they still refer to it in public education. I'm not sure they do, but let's hope they do. But guys, in that, that uh, monumental work, de Tocqueville said a lot of things that I'm going to quote. But among them was he expressed some concerns about democracy. The chief concern that de Tocqueville had was over what he called individualism. Let me read you what he said. Guys, listen to this. I mean, this is, this is penetrating. Individualism that would force Americans to withdraw from public life into the comforts of private and family life. The government would then oversee, listen, the government would then oversee an increasing number of the tasks originally carried out by families, churches, and local associations. Towns would become mere slaves to state and federal officials. Local voluntary associations in which citizens learn to treat others decently would wither and die. Americans would no longer serve their neighbors. Instead, they would bow to the faceless majority and the state, which would care for their needs as it told them how to live and what to believe. Not bad, huh? De Tocqueville went on to say that the, the, the secret of the American democracy lies not in the, I'm quoting, lies not in the abundance of its natural resources or in the genius of its laws and constitution. But listen, but in the mores or habits of the heart formed in the American townships, only with the proper feelings and habits can a people remain free. You remember this book? 1985, Habits of the Heart. It was a blockbuster, national bestseller by Robert Bella. But this title, Habits of the Heart, if you read this, he got from de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville said that the, that the secret of the American democracy was not in the fact that we had a lot of this, that, or the other, or not in the genius of the Constitution. The, 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 the key to the success of the American democracy, democratic experience, was in the habits of the heart. The mores, the morals, uh, and these proper feelings and habits, uh, only with those in view can people remain free. He asked this question. What moral habits are necessary if a people are to remain free? What moral habits are necessary if a people are to remain free? Now remember... Democracy has already been described as being temporary. Guys, um, maybe you've heard this before, but it is, it is common knowledge that one of the reasons for the demise of the former Soviet Union was the disappearance of the truth. The citizenry could not trust anything they were told. In fact, it is said that it got so bad in the Soviet Union before the wall fell that citizens in the city of Moscow uh, could not trust, they could not believe the weather forecast 
in their paper, I think it's called Pravda. They couldn't even trust the weather forecast. Remove truth from a society. And she will implode. Um, the talkable. Listen, for Americans, religion must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. Religion forms good character, making people capable of ruling themselves instead of being ruled by kings or dictators. In this way, religion has also taught people how to use their freedom by serving their friends and neighbors according to the golden rule. I don't know who said this, but it wasn't me. If men are not ruled from within, they will be ruled from without. I do know who said this. Edmund Burke said this. He said, liberty will be experienced to the degree that man can chain his own passions. Now, do you understand, guys, what the, the point that Dutakable is making is that religion is that thing, that institution that teaches men to chain their passions. And it, and it must, i reading again, quoting, must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. Now, guys, go back to the text with me. Back to Habakkuk chapter 1. Because there is something said here that I think is uh, oh so germane to um, really everything, but... It's, um, it's verse 5 and following, but really in verse 5, there, there's a couple of things that I want to point out that are being said there. Two things. First of all, God is not indifferent to sin. He's doing something. He's up to something. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean that he's not up to something. God is not indifferent to sin. Number two, God is in control of every power in history on the face of this planet. He raises up who he wants to raise up. Now, having said all that, where, where do you expect me to go with this? Where do you think I'm going next? Do you think I'm going to break into some uh, kind of prophetic statement of doom on America? And how... God is going to judge America, some tirade. You know, guys, as a young Christian, I listened to Jim Kennedy do that very thing several times. And he warned us again and again about how communism would be the rod of God's judgment. Well, communism is... I mean, it's not gone, but it certainly has uh, lost some steam. You know, guys, very honestly, I don't know what God is going to do. He may very well bring this country to naught through some method that he designs. I don't know whether he's going to do that. But let me tell you what I do know. Number one, I know that he is not indifferent to sin. And number two that he controls every power in history on the face of this planet. And he will not always 
act like an unconcerned spectator. Hey guys, I want to close um, by leaving behind four what I hope are lessons or applications that I hope will comfort you. Maybe you're not disturbed about what you see going on in America. I am. But I bet you I'm not alone. But just four things that I hope will um, will speak peace. First of all, God is slow to anger. And we all better be glad that he is. Um, guys, this delay that, that Habakkuk is mentioning here, that delay has long been a source of, of frustration for Christians. But, but not only has it frustrated Christians, it's also given cause for the non-Christian world to scoff. So much so that Peter addresses that. Peter in the New Testament addresses it in a, in a famous passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, now listen, he's, he's describing this delay. And he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Guys, this question of how long, which is voiced here by Habakkuk, it's voiced by the psalmist, it's voiced in the book of Revelation. How long, God? How long, God? Um, that is a question often asked this, by this book, but it is never answered. The only answer that I can give you is the one I think that Peter gives us here, and that is this. You and I must understand this delay in terms of... Mercy and grace. Not wish, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Guys, the, the, the delay, the slowness of God, the seeming indifference is something that Peter interprets this way. He says, yes, I see it too, but it's not slowness like other men consider slowness. But God is going to do his thing. Whatever that is. But the reason for the delay is he does not wish to see men perish. So in the midst of our frustrations and our wondering, why is it that justice always goes forth perverted? Well, as hard as that is to swallow, guys. It's got to be understood in the context, through the grid of mercy and grace. That's the first lesson. Here's the second. Government is not the solution to our problems. And neither is the Supreme Court. I mean, um, those, those two things, they've got to be viewed as nothing more than pawns. Uh, in the hands of God in his whole uh, display of moral government. Now, guys, I, 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 I do understand that certain governments and certain Supreme Courts can make it very difficult for Christians to live faithfully. They can. 
very frankly, that probably wouldn't be a bad thing. Let me, let me tell you why I say that. Guys, the history of the Christian church is that she has always been opposed. The, 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 the majority has always been hostile to the Christian church. I would say to you that never has the church had it as good as she's had it over the last 200 years. Now, there, there are certainly pockets of places where bad things are happening. But, but uh, overall, um, the church has never had it so good. There was a story that was told back in those halcyon days of communism. I, I've, I've heard it told a couple of times, and I've read it in a couple of books. And, and so you probably have heard this too. But it, it, it just kind of explains my point, so let me tell it. It was about this, uh, and I, I guess it was a true story, but it was about this small group of um, Christians who had gathered in a church behind the Iron Curtain for worship in a church. And, and as they were, they were engaged in their worship service, the, suddenly the doors in the back burst open and, and um, this ring of armed soldiers encircled this little group and they were scared and, they, and they had their gun, the, the soldiers had their guns on and this guy in a trench coat walks forward to the front of the room and he looks at this small group of Christians and he says, I'm tired of this foolishness. I'm giving you a chance to save your skin. Now get out of here. A few of them, you know, kind of trickled out the back door. And so he said, one more time, I'm telling you, if you don't want to be arrested and then who knows what, you better let go of all this foolishness and get out of here. A few more trickled out. Then one of the soldiers went to the back door and closed the door and locked it. They all took off their guns. They sat in the pews and they said, okay, let's continue the worship service. What, what I'm saying, guys, is um, depending on what happens in the government of this land, the church may indeed be in for quite a shaking. And by the way, I'm not trying to discourage any kind of... I'm not trying to advocate a passivity in electoral process. I hope you will be involved in it. But I am telling you this. Don't expect much. It's not the solution. You cannot expect a country that is predominantly pagan to befriend the Christian church and her causes. The government is not our hope. Neither is the Supreme Court. Thirdly, I want to suggest to you, this is a personal opinion, but I'm, I'm going to tell you why I believe it, that the reason that this democracy has lasted as long as she has is because that this government or this country was founded by Christians for Christianity. The, the early colonists saw the task of settlement as something that was God-given. They called it an errand into the wilderness, an experience in Christian living, the founding of a city set upon a hill. Back in the 1830s or 40s, the Tocqueville said, Christianity reigns without obstacles by universal consent. I'm suggesting that that's no longer true. And the consequences of that, I can only say, is something that God will determine. But the reason that this democracy has been, has lasted as long as she has, 
when the founders of this country were saying, it's going to implode, it's going to kill itself, it's going to, is because Christianity was the basic formative principle of this country and her beauties. Here's my fourth lesson, and I, with this I quit. The solution is the Christian gospel. Guys, listen to me. It is only the message of Jesus Christ that can provide, number one, the salvation or the possibility for a salvation forever. But it also provides those rules, those habits of the heart that lead to decent living and lead to a a morally coherent lifestyle. It is only the, the, the declarations and proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that creates an environment for the encouragement of the habits of the heart. Remove it, that is the gospel, remove it, and it becomes impossible to predict what sin will do and what God will do in response to sin. You know, there's a lot been written about George Washington and his spiritual life. I mean, people have said, oh, he's the finest Christian, and then others say, no, he wasn't. And a lot's been written uh, on both sides of George Washington. But I can tell you this, he was a... Um, um, he, he was a pillar in the Episcopal Church. He was a, a regular attender, and um, he was even a vestryman, which is kind of like an elder. Uh, but interestingly, he was never observed to have ever received communion, which I thought I found interesting. But Washington, in his farewell address, says this. Religion and morality are the indispensable supports of political prosperity. He went on to say that he doubted that, quoting, morality can be maintained without religion and suggested that these two, religion and morality, are the great pillars of public happiness and the firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. You know what, guys? If I were a non-Christian businessman, you know what I'd be investing my money in? I would invest my money into the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's not going to be any profit taking. Once the habits of the heart are removed from this land. I'm not saying he believes it. but I'm, I'm just saying he ought to invest in it. Because the only thing that's going to provide the framework for trade to take place is the the detritus, the the distillates of the proclamation of the Christian gospel. Gang, I'm saying to you, as my brother and sister in Christ, our country is dying for what we've got. Guys, they don't call the gospel good news for nothing. Because it's the message that proclaims what God has done in Christ about sin. Let me show you one other thing, that one other way that that message is taught, and then I'm done. It's back in the book of Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk's got to learn a lesson in this dialogue with God. He's got to learn a lesson. And the lesson that he's got to learn is, according to what standard will a nation be pleasing to God? That is, what is it that will make one nation pleasing to God and the other one displeasing to God? 
And he learns that lesson in this dialogue with God. And God says to him from verse 2 and forward, I'll just read verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You see, what's important to God is not um, your political associations, nor is it your um, national derivations. The just shall live by faith. And you know what? Those could be Chaldeans. They could be Chinese. They could be um, Russians. But the principle that God delights in is a message that declares the just shall live by faith in Christ. Guys, if, if America is ruined, she won't be ruined because of the price of oil. Or she won't be ruined because the Democrats win. She will be ruined because of the absence of the Christian gospel. Father, I do pray that you will um, sort this all out for us or help us sort it out in a way that is um, balanced and, and righteous and good. And I pray that you will um, stir the church of Jesus Christ to her first love, that of the proclamation of a crucified and resurrected Christ done in the place of sinners. It is with that message, O oh God, that the world can be one. Father, um, in the midst of whatever challenges that face us as individuals, I pray that you will remind us that you are not indifferent to sin and that you are in control of every power that has ever existed on the face of this planet. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray.